In this insight, David Reed looks at a change of gear in relations with Australia. Does the easing of travel restrictions between the two countries herald a greater harmonisation of business practices, even a single currency or a new ANZAC military force? In the year to June and for the first time ever over 12 months, more than 1 million Australians visited New Zealand. As tourism, family and business connections continue to grow, both governments want streamlined processing at the borders. At the moment, anyone coming from Australia comes through these familiar checks, the passport counter then on to customs. From December, Australians and New Zealanders arriving at Auckland Airport from Australia will be able to pass through smart gates using an e-passport. Customs Controller and Chief Executive Martin Dunn says the technology to be rolled out at Wellington and Christchurch next year should get travellers from plane to taxi much faster. The two Prime Ministers have made it quite clear that they want it to be as near domestic experience as possible given that there are still border security issues and so the idea of this is to actually move towards a more facilitative process so that people can pass through as quickly as possible, all the time understanding that there are border controls in place. Baggage entering the country will also be subject to less scrutiny. Instead of the current 100% screening regime, border officials in Australia and New Zealand are to work together, profiling high-risk travellers. These changes are just the first that signal the government's intention to accelerate plans for better integration with Australia, especially for business. And Australia appears to be on side. Speaking at a recent forum on remaking the Tasman world, the Minister of Commerce, Simon Power, outlined a renewed vigour for a single market. Although thought of as a concept a long time ago, it was first probably truly articulated in 2004 by Michael Cullen and the then Australian Treasurer, Peter Costello. And I can tell you from first-hand experience that the changes in governments on both sides of the Tasman have seen a fresh and determined assessment of progress. The last major attempt at aligning the business needs of the two countries was the Closer Economic Relations Programme, signed off in 1982. Described by some as the most successful trade agreement ever made, it's estimated that CER drove a 500% increase in trade across the Tasman in the ensuing 20 years. At the time of signing the agreement, the then Prime Minister Rob Muldoon answered a question on what it would mean to the man in the street. My belief is that in the short term he won't notice it, but if you're talking in terms of the next decade, uh, there will be probably a wider range of goods. Certainly we would expect uh, cheaper goods than would otherwise have been the case. Historian Philippa Main-Smith says looking back through the archives shows that while publicly denying progress towards CER, behind the scenes Rob Muldoon backed it all the way. Muldoon actually told the New Zealand public one story and behind the scenes he was doing another and bringing to fruition CER working with Doug Antony, the Australian Deputy Prime Minister. That's what the archives show. Whatever you read in the newspapers of the time or whatever he said on television, he ensured it happened. Another leading public figure of the time was trans-Tasman everyman Fred Dagg, better known in Australia as John Clark. His assessment on CER at the time was that it could benefit both countries, but only if the world had time. 
Well, I think they're probably going to end up uh, not so much doing anybody in the eye, perhaps not even each other, so much as sharing the last waltz together, which I think is very touching, and I think it's very suitable that these two very old nations, both duped by the mother country a short while ago, uh, should share in this wondrous last-minute communion before the Big Bang. We can work it out. We can work it out. Since CER, more work has taken place to strengthen ties. Closer economic relations, originally just a trade agreement, now embraces regulation. In 1998, moving goods and services was eased by the Trans-Tasman Mutual Recognition Agreement, and a harmonisation of business law, to a degree, has also taken place. Philippa Main-Smith has co-authored a book reviewing the relationship across the Tasman. She says it's clear there's renewed political will to build on what was achieved under CER. There is a building of momentum now, and we've seen it since 2001 when the relationship was still a little scrappy over defence and over migration issues. But we're through all that, and that momentum as a result of all that effort and platform building I think is culminating in this move, this push now towards a single market. Professor Main-Smith says personalities at the top table are crucial to progress. It's actually very, very important for the relationship to have Prime Ministers who are great mates. In the past, of course, when the relationship wasn't so important, you had the Deputy PMs dealing with it. And it was really important that the Deputy PMs got on in the 1960s. In our case, Jack Marshall got on with Jack McEwen, the Australian. And those relationships are critical to get things done. If you want to achieve results, you have to have staunch friendships on both sides of the Tasman. And I think it's terrific for New Zealand that John Key does get on so well with Kevin Rudd to the point of sharing a bathroom. I think that's brilliant. Improving integration for business is very much the focus, and as such, it's the Minister of Commerce, Simon Power, who appears to be leading the charge. Mr Power says his aim is to make doing business for a New Zealand company as easy in Wollongong as it is in Ekatahuna. He says building a single economic market is now a top priority for commerce officials. I've already made it clear to MED and commerce officials that in the commerce portfolio that I have responsibility for, uh, alongside some work in the financial markets, that the issue of the single economic market will be of the highest priority in 2010. Simon Power says his task is to focus on those areas which provide an obstacle to business. Say, for example, around insolvency proceedings, um, court proceedings being able to be served on both sides of the Tasman, company records only needing to be filed once in one jurisdiction, and the possibility of a single trans-Tasman company number. Those sorts of things are all in the mix. Some have made more progress than others. I'm particularly interested in regulatory institutional alignment, and that's a big step, but one that I'm keen to try and progress. They're moves that Simon Power says would achieve deeper integration and would build on the approach already taken. But business argues it needs more. A top-level businessman on both sides of the Tasman for over 25 years, Kenny MacDonald is also a former chairman of the Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum. He says the forum, now in its sixth year, has sparked a joint will from businessmen on both sides of the water. What those meetings highlighted was the real enthusiasm and the sense of need for the two countries to work more closely together. Single market between the two is okay. There'll be some benefits to the two economies there. But the critical thing is to give a stronger platform 
for the two countries to compete with the rest of the world. Currently, each country is making its own separate steps towards major tax reform. Kenny MacDonald says it's unifying the principles of taxation that will benefit business most. Some of the impediments inherent within the tax system need to be recognised. So uh, there was a small step forward previously, but it was almost useless. You know, the big issue of mutual recognition of franking credits and so on, that needs to be grasped. The chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers New Zealand, John Shewan, is also a leading voice on the Australia-New Zealand Leadership Forum. He says this year's forum, replete with 14 cabinet ministers, showed real promise for momentum on the issues of tax. John Shewan says taxation on investments remains a sticking point for both individuals and companies. Put simply, uh, for New Zealanders investing into Australia, they're going to get a much lower return because they don't get any value for the franking credits that are attached to their dividends and vice versa. So it would be crazy in New Zealand if, if you invested in South Island companies, you got a lower return than if you invested in North Island companies. So the proposition we've been consistently hammering in the, on the Leadership Forum is that if we're serious about a single economic market, then we have to harmonise the two imputation systems so that you get credit for Australian tax if you're a New Zealander investing into Australia and credit for New Zealand tax if you're an Australian investing into New Zealand. And until that happens, unfortunately, tax becomes a major obstacle investment and that's it's not satisfactory. He says the two tax imputation systems are similar, but issues of sovereignty do remain. New Zealand recognises New Zealand tax only, so we'd have to actually change the law to recognise Australian tax. That comes at a cost. Similarly, Australia would have to do the same. So there is a short-term cost to both governments, and that is one of the potential issues to be resolved. But longer term, in terms of growth and productivity and free flow of investment, there's no doubt in my mind that mutual recognition of franking credits is an absolute imperative. And pleasingly, the New Zealand government is now... On side, it's now officially New Zealand government policy. Uh, equally pleasingly, the Australian government, uh, the Rudd government, seems far more willing to consider the issue than, than the Howard government. That's not to say they're across the line. I think we've got a bit of persuasion to do there yet. John Shewan says with sustained political will, a harmonisation of tax on investments could be resolved by as early as 2011. Business groups are also clamouring for a single source of regulation. Already, Food Standards Australia New Zealand administer the safety rules for food in both countries. However, the government here says it prefers that regulatory bodies work closer together rather than as one. Kerry MacDonald says that won't do and cites banking as an area where a single regulator could work. I would say we get enormous benefit from the Australian regulators' oversight of the Australian parent banks. It's a much more hard-nosed and effective regulatory environment. So when we went into the, into the global financial crisis, the banking system here benefited from it. It's not to say that New Zealand regulation is, is not OK, but I think uh, as a matter of principle, uh, going to single regulator uh, would be a good idea, probably across a whole range of areas. The Australian High Commissioner to New Zealand, Paul O'Sullivan, says the banking model in both countries stood up well to the recent financial crisis, but he says improvements should always be considered.
I think the system as it works quite well. It, that's not to say it can't be improved or it shouldn't be further developed. There are a whole range of uh, activities going on uh, in a G20 context. Uh, having said that, I don't think uh, anyone would say that there's a, a crisis in the Australian banking sector. On the contrary, the strength of that sector has been one of the things that's helped us through the crisis. However, economist Brian Easton says the current setup has meant that the New Zealand government has been able to keep pressure from the banks at arm's length. Because we had Australian banks, we had quite a different uh, relationship to, to the banking system compared to Australia. One thing is that the Australian banks lobby in Australia and they have political power. They don't have as much political power as in New Zealand. So we could... Um, independently treat them. Don Brash, a former governor of the Reserve Bank and National Party leader, is also cautious about having a single regulator, in the banking sector at least. He's in charge of a steering group determined to investigate how New Zealand can catch up to Australian earnings by 2025. I have deep concerns about the direction in which bank regulation is moving. I think it's not self-evident that more and more intrusive bank regulation can in fact reduce the risk of bank failure. To listen to some people talk, you'd think that banks have been totally unregulated for the last couple of decades. Nothing could be further from the truth. And there's been enormous effort put into trying to harmonise bank regulation between countries. And despite that, of course, we've had a serious financial crisis. Dr Brash says New Zealand needs to cherry-pick what's best for its own needs. My own hope is that New Zealand does harmonise with Australian laws and regulation where that makes sense. Uh, if we are going to overtake Australian living standards in the next 15 or 16 years, we have to make sure that our policies are the very best they can be, and that doesn't necessarily mean we should adopt Australian policies. But can New Zealand and Australia truly embrace each other under one economic umbrella without addressing the rather large elephant in the room? Should there be a common currency? Historian Philippa Main-Smith believes there is a case to be made for it. Now it's on the table again because of the global financial crisis and because uh, we are such a tiny uh, nation and small exporting economy and we're being buffeted around. And if we were connected to Australia you know, through a signal currency, it might give us better protection. So I think it's simply for reasons of convenience that it's back on the table because it may... When you evaluate the costs and benefits, five years ago the costs were greater than the benefits. Now the benefits might be greater than the costs of doing that. But the trick, tricky part, of course, is all the emotions and the national sentiment attached to those Kiwi icons on our notes. You know, would it be because it would have to, frankly, to be sensible, it would have to be the Australian dollar. I think. And Trans Tasman businessman Kerry McDonald says it's something New Zealand should be looking at more closely. As New Zealand's economic performance quietly deteriorates, the dynamics around something like a common currency change. And it may in fact become more attractive to us, but also more difficult. Running these large current account deficits all the time, building up our liability to foreign lenders and investors, so our net foreign obligations have gone through the roof. The Reserve Bank is clearly very worried about that. Our productivity growth rate over the last decade, half Australia's, so that's why our incomes are lower than Australia's. And, you know, there's no easy way out of this. And we do have the opportunity with Australia to take some pretty constructive steps. 
Economist Brian Easton says while potentially good for business, adopting a common currency has one obvious drawback. Clearly for those who export to Australia, there would be an advantage of a single currency. It would also reduce the turbulence that happens to New Zealand, which is a small currency but gets traded a lot. So there are benefits. On the other hand, there are costs. The costs include that lots of other people don't export to Australia. And because they're the bigger partner, we would be shifted around by Australian needs. So, for instance, if there was a mining boom, their currency would go up, which, say, Fonterra, selling to China, might not feel very happy with. The Australian High Commissioner, Paul O'Sullivan, says the problem with a country losing its tool of monetary policy has been shown in Europe. I happened to be living in Germany when the Deutschmark was replaced by the euro, so I had direct observation of a country which changed from a single to a unified currency with other nations. It's obvious that the instruments of policy which the Germans have available to them now are reduced compared to what they would have had previously when they had a separate currency. So I don't think it's just a question of relative ease of doing business with a single currency, for instance, or relative ease of bookkeeping, or relative ease of convenience of of people moving across the Tasman. Those things are all true. But you also have to consider the broader question of what happens if the governments of either side of the Tasman then have less flexibility in their uh, instruments of monetary policy because they have a unified currency rather than a single currency. Paul O'Sullivan says, however, now is a good time for New Zealand to use its presence on the Council of Australian Governments to progress economic alignment. I think what's going on is that the uh, fact and the availability of modern communications technology means that a whole series of issues which have been around in Australia since Federation are now capable of being brought into a agreed framework. And what we call that process uh, is, uh, comes under the title of the Council of Australian Governments, or COAG as it's popularly known. And as many people in New Zealand would be aware, and very uniquely I might say, uh, New Zealand participates in a whole range of those COAG processes and it also participates in the review of those processes. So what's going on is Australia is trying to sort out within its jurisdiction how to harmonise activities that affect business or affect travel or affect biosecurity or affect health and so on. And in that process, New Zealand also, where it wishes to, is able to participate. COAG comprises, among others, the Australian Prime Minister, State Premiers and Territory Chief Ministers. Formed in 1992, its stated aim is to develop unified policy across the different states of the country. The organisation has set up a task force to tackle regulatory reform. New Zealand has been asked to participate on that team and Simon Power says he immediately accepted the invitation. The coalition of Australian governments are working closely to harmonising a range of regulation within states. Um, New Zealand sitting at that table as we do on some of those ministerial councils which is a terrific opportunity that we should maximise not just as an observer. More than 450,000 New Zealanders have made Australia their home and it's now estimated that one in seven Māori live there with new tribal identities appearing such as Ngāti Ocker. And with 60,000 Australians now living in New Zealand there is a clear exchange of cultural values. Here the relationship between Māori and Pākehā is underpinned by the Treaty of Waitangi but in moves towards a single economic market 
Are such values considered? A lecturer at Victoria University, Dr Jessica Hutchings, says it's clear that Indigenous voices are not being heard. From a Māori perspective, we need to be thinking about the treaty relationship and where that fits in, and the implications not only just for us as Māori, as tangata whenua in Aotearoa, but also to the implications for our Indigenous neighbours in Australia and what that means for Aboriginal people. So what will it mean for the nature of the relationship between the state, the governing authority, and the mana whenua or the tangata whenua, the Indigenous people, the first peoples of those countries? I think one of the things that really concerns me is that the nature of the relationship will change and what does that mean and we don't seem to be engaging in any dialogue with the Crown or the government over that. She says an attempt to enter into a bilateral agreement with Australia on therapeutic products foundered due to a lack of consultation with Māori. And Dr Hutchings says both Māori and Aborigine have good cause to check any headlong rush towards a unified market. I think we need to be very suspicious and I think we need to be very critical and to read in between the lines of what's going on here. The movement towards a single economic market, uh, for me from an Indigenous perspective, really just expands the ground for um, the physical ground, the physical territories in terms of minerals and natural resources for governments to exploit and that has huge implications for Indigenous people. We see ourselves and we are part of the environment, we have guardianship duties to protect the environment, um, it's huge implications. Across the campus, in an office within Wellington's railway station, Peter Cousins is the director of the Centre for Strategic Studies. Essential industries and defence strategies are other important questions when it comes to pursuing closer ties with Australia. Peter Cousins says in terms of utilising mineral and hydrocarbon resources, both countries would be best served looking after their own interests. For Australia, its wealth is really in the hands of, of China rather than actually in its own hands. So I think from a strategic point of view, it's much better that both Australia and New Zealand develop their own indigenous industries and therefore it gives you a degree of flexibility strategically. The military ties with Australia have been described as an emotional cornerstone. The symbolism of the Anzac soldier stretches back to the First World War, where soldiers from both countries gave their lives at Gallipoli. Relations in the area became strained in 1985, when New Zealand refused a visit by an American warship on the grounds it could be armed with nuclear weapons. Peter Cousins says while that marked a divergence in foreign policy, the new key government is back in step with Australia. I think the two Prime Ministers uh, are very comfortable to harness this emotional and sentimental energy and best of luck to them. I think this is very good. However, you've, just, you've mentioned the word military, which tends to orient towards land forces. The, the actual fact of the matter is that uh, there is a huge amount of cooperation at the moment between both the Navy of Australia and New Zealand and the Air Forces as well. 
In the air and at sea, New Zealand and Australia regularly conduct joint military exercises. And Peter Cousins believes reviving a full land-based Anzac force could happen, with an aim of joint action for as many as 80% of operations. But the business of forming land forces uh, where troops from both countries can operate together, it has to happen. This is very much in the interests of both countries. Whether or not we have a fully integrated uh, ANZAC brigade, for example, there's no reason why we should not explore it, because if push does come to shove in a hot situation, then the more our people are trained to operate together, then surely it must be in the best interests of, of both countries. Australia has recently announced it intends to allocate $25 billion of spending for its defence budget. Professor Terry Stokes from Victoria University's School of Government says with that sort of spend, any alignment by New Zealand's military force could be out of reach. The shopping list across the Tasman for expensive defence purchases is incredible. Whether the government will be able to get the taxpayers to wear the opportunity costs of 12 new submarines and new frigates and you name it, they're buying it, I don't know. But I don't think there's any appetite at all in New Zealand for that kind of defence procurement, even scaled to a New Zealand level. And indeed, one of my colleagues uh, in the School of Government has been arguing that it makes sense for the New Zealand four, three defence forces to be combined in a, um, in a single force, basically a marine force, which focuses on the things that, that it's tasked to do, such as regional security. Australia's white paper, released earlier this year, outlining its proposed military build-up, was subtitled Defending Australia in the Asia-Pacific Century. Could greater alignment with Australia help defend New Zealand against the challenges of the 21st century? It could, according to some, but Brian Easton says New Zealand's economic sites should not be restricted to what Australia can offer. There is an issue which is not about Australia, it's about our place in a globalised world, about how we will connect to the rest of the world. And it may be that um, many of our companies will become international companies and will be owned overseas, and sometimes they'll be owned in Australia, but other companies will be owned elsewhere. I don't think we can solve the problem by simply rushing it behind stepmummy's skirts. And strategist Peter Cousins says New Zealand must focus its efforts on how it can survive alone. If we receive only 5% from each 120th of our maritime estate as what we get from the land, we'd double our GDP. We would not be the poor player as far as Australia is concerned. We would be a highly treasured and highly valued partner. But businessman Kerry MacDonald says now is the time to move or New Zealand could be left behind. The real danger with New Zealand is with the hollowing out of the economy and the poor performance of the economy, our bargaining position gradually erodes. You know, at the end of the day, we will become closer to Australia one way or another. And the sooner we do it, the more it's likely to be on our terms. For historian Philippa Main-Smith, it's no surprise that a new relationship with Australia is now being examined. The world is rearranging itself at the moment because of technology and also because of the resurgence of Asia, the rise of India and China. So the world is realigning, so it makes sense for Australia and New Zealand to realign as well and in this possibly new Australasia. Philippa Main-Smith says this period in history will be defined as a world in economic shock and uncertain of its future. Whether New Zealand can use stronger ties with Australia to move forward remains to be seen.
That insight was written and presented by David Reed. Technical production was by Colette Jensen, and the programme was produced by Sue Ingram.